Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, we start a new series today, and it's called... The Advent of Patience. And how many of you have a hard time being patient? Right? Uh, What is the hardest thing about being patient is waiting. Uh, And we come into a season called Christmas. And it's nothing but a season of waiting. In many different respects, it's about waiting. I remember being a kid, and some of you remember that too, if it wasn't too long ago for you. Some of you may remember waiting for Christmas Day. And you'd watch how gifts would sometimes start to accumulate under the tree. But the very morning of Christmas, you'd wake up and it would be packed. Right? It'd be full of different gifts. Have you ever tried to peel back that piece of scotch, not scotch tape, but that clear tape to try to peek inside without tearing the paper? Did you ever do that? Come on. Come on. Really? I don't believe you. All right, one of you. One of you says yes. Did you ever try to find the hiding spot? Right? Where do they hide the gifts? Did you know over 2,000 years ago, there was a waiting period that lasted for centuries? A waiting period of the Jewish people for a Messiah. The chosen people called Israel. They had heard their prophets speak about this coming leader, this anointed one who would set captives free. They had watched as every generation had continued to tell the story that someday... Someday, there will be one who will come who will not only be a blessing to the nations as was given us through our father Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, but would basically set the record straight once and for all for humankind. That he would break the bonds and the chains of sin and death that was instituted at the first disobedience in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. That this Messiah would not only come to help with our personal issues, but would come in such a way to point us to eternity. This gift of waiting is what I call it is the one we call Jesus Christ. As we come into this Advent period, I want to talk about the gift of waiting. And this is a two-part gift. So we're talking about part one of the gift of waiting today. And then part two will be later on this month. Have you ever had to wait for something so long that you just couldn't stand it? I found a story. It was actually of a guy by the name of Ben in 1898. And trust me, the 1800s were a different time period in the United States. 
So I want, I'm going to read this illustration. You're going to be like, I can't believe that. Uh, but hear me out on this. It was 1898. Ben had left the East eight years ago, and he headed out West in the United States in hopes of making his fortune. Back in the 1800s, you had the gold rush. You had all this stuff happening out West, and so there was opportunity out West. And so he left to seek out his fortune. He wasn't rich, but he had ended up out in the west, accumulating over 300 acres of good land. He built a comfortable farmhouse on it. He raised wheat and corn and all of his vegetables. He was self-sustaining in this place. He had actually managed to build his herd of cattle to over 200 head of cattle. And having accomplished all of this in only eight years, he decided that it was now time. What do you think it was time for? I got to get me a woman. <laughs> so he took it out an ad and placed it in a New York newspaper because he wanted a woman from there to come out and be with him eventually if it all worked out. And this was the ad. Wanted a good woman willing to be a pen pal. We would call those Facebook friends now, but back in the day, it would be a pen pal, right? Marriage, he says, is a possibility for the right woman. Basically, it's like, hey, I'm a pretty good catch, and if it works out, we can get married. I told you, this was 1800s. It sounds kind of arrogant, but I want you to hear how the rest of the story goes. Before long, he began to receive letters from a girl by the name of Molly, their correspondence soon turned into love for each other. Now keep in mind, photography was a thing, but it wasn't a widely used thing. There were no pictures sent, just words. Now here he stood in Kansas City in a train station waiting to finally meet her after months and months of correspondence together. When the train arrived, there were a lot of women getting off of this train. And suddenly he yelled, Molly, over here. She looked his way. She walked over to him. She smiled and held out her hand. He took it for a moment and then let it go. And she said, how was it you knew it was me? How did you know I was Molly? He then reached in. No, this isn't an uh-oh. This is a good thing. He then reached into his back pocket of his overalls and he said, from these here letters. She says, but there's no pictures in them. And he dropped his head a bit and said, oh, yes, there are. There's lots of pictures in your words. You see, Ben had spent hours reading over every single letter and every single word in those letters that she had written him, looking for every little cue or clue that would tell him who Molly really was. And over the amount of time that he read her words and waited to meet her, he had fallen in love with her through her words, words that had painted a portrait of who she was so that when she stepped off the train among a sea of other women, he knew exactly who she was. Jesus would come. John tells us, and we're going to actually study this, I believe it's next week in this series, in John chapter 1, 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it says. But as that word became flesh and dwelt among us, did you know it also says he came to his own, but his own received him not? The ones who had studied the Old Testament, the Torah, the law of God, his very words given to Moses and all the other authors of the Old Testament, they knew by the words, but they didn't have eyes to see. Isaiah, in his prophecies, gives us a glimpse into the picture of this Messiah that would come. And I want to give you an understanding that when, when Isaiah wrote his prophecy in the Old Testament, it was just over 700 years of time before Jesus would actually come up onto the scene. How many of you would be willing to wait 700 years for something to happen? Now, that's just from Isaiah's perspective. We're not talking about the rest of Scripture prior to Isaiah. There were centuries, there were millennia that had passed awaiting the coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, you hear this in Handel's Messiah. Have you heard of Handel's Messiah? For unto us a child is born. I'm horrible at singing that, but you know what I'm talking about. This is where that famous passage, that famous song comes from. Isaiah chapter 9, starting with verse 1. Now, there's a nevertheless there because there was something that preceded it. I'm not going to go into all of that today, and the reason I'm not is because I want to encourage you to read Isaiah's prophecies. He's actually talking about things that are going to happen to the nation as time elapses. But he says, when we get to this point, Nevertheless, no matter the judgment of God that will come upon you, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. How many of you enjoy hearing that when you're going through a rough time that it's not going to last forever? You may think it's going to last forever. You may feel it's going to last forever. You may have lost a loved one. You may have lost a marriage. You may have lost a child. You may have lost any number of things. And you're going through this deep, dark valley. This is something that's not unique to us. It's been from generations previous to us. And the prophet Isaiah says, don't worry. Don't worry. It's not going to last forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Now, let me give you a picture of this. I didn't think to put a map on here, but if you look in the Middle East, specifically where modern-day Israel is, if you were to look at an ancient map kind of superimposed over that, you would see the Sea of Galilee in the northern region of what would have been Israel in the ancient times and is still Israel today. In that region, the Sea of Galilee, just to the left of the Sea of Galilee, which would be, which would be to the west, is this region in Jesus' day known as Galilee. The Romans would have conquered the land many century, a few centuries before that and would be the rulers over this whole territory. So this region of Galilee would be where the northern kingdom in the Old Testament of Israel was after it had broken into two. They had kind of this fight. There was a southern kingdom, a northern kingdom. A southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was called Israel. In that northern kingdom of Israel were the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And in that region is where the Galilee 
the region of Galilee would be in Jesus' day. So he's talking about the same location there. So he said, there's a time of darkness that'll come to that land, but eventually, eventually, there's gonna be something amazing happen in that region. Verse two, the people who walk in darkness in that area, they will see a great light. What is Jesus known as in John chapter one? He's called the bread of life, he's called, but he's also known as light. He's also known as light. So people will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. In Jesus' day, the region of Galilee and Nazareth was kind of the blue-collar worker region. <clears throat> and because generations who had grown up there of Jewish people they were a part of that northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, if you read in the Old Testament, 1st, 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, the northern kingdom were the black sheep of the family. The 10 tribes of the northern kingdom, the two tribes of the southern kingdom, Benjamin and, Ju and Judah, which we know as the kingdom of Judah, they were the ones through whom the great kings had come from. David being the great, greatest king of them all. The northern kingdom... <clears throat> If you look at the breakdown of the two, of the northern and southern kingdom of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, there were only eight good kings. Guess where they all came from? The southern kingdom. There were no good kings of the northern kingdom because they opened the whole territory and the ten tribes of the northern kingdom up to pagan worship. They even offered their children to these pagan gods. Now, it's not to mean that Judah was perfect or better. They were just slightly better than the northern kingdom. Judah had eight good kings. But good is a relative term when you actually look at the eight good kings of Judah in First and Second Kings in the Old Testament. Of those eight kings, there were only three of them who actually brought revival to the land, who cleared out the holy places and the temple of all the other shrines of the pagan gods and said, enough is enough. We only worship one God of heaven and earth. So now flash forward to Jesus' day and age, this land of Galilee, which used to be known as Zebulun and Naphtali. A light will shine. A light will shine in the northern kingdom that didn't have any good kings through whom there wouldn't be a lasting king because only David would have somebody sit on the throne forever. That's what God had committed to David. Do you remember the prophecies of the Old Testament and the words of God covenanted with David that he would always have a descendant to sit on the throne of Israel? But wait a minute, a light's coming to the northern region? Does this sound crazy to you? Wait, it's supposed to come from the southern region in Judah where David was born in this town called Bethlehem. How's the light supposed to come from Galilee? That's nowhere near Bethlehem. Isaiah, who's speaking on behalf of God, may not even understand exactly what he's telling the people. He's just working as a servant of God to proclaim the words of God to the people of God. But listen to this. Verse 3, you will enlarge the nation, who is the you? He's talking about the one who will come. 
You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice for you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod. Who is in authority over this region called Galilee during the time of Christ? It's the Romans. Prior to them, it was the Greeks. Prior to them, it was the Babylonians. Prior to them, it was the Persians and the Medes. Prior to them, it was a group called the Assyrians. And prior to them is when the Jews had a nation. You will break the, rod of the, the, the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior, it says, and the uniforms bloodstained by war will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. Do you see what he's saying? There's coming a time when the one who will come to set captives free, this light that will shine in Galilee, this one to come will be someone who is peaceful. He's not going to instigate wars. Actually, all bloodshed from that point forward under his leadership will end. Verse 6, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. This prince of peace will usher in a government, a kingdom that is actually known for its peace and not its war. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for how long? All eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. That is a statement that is definitive. That's not an if-or statement or an if-then statement. It is the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. You could take that to the bank. You can stake a claim in that. You can bet that his promise will be fulfilled in this world. So here's a key takeaway this morning. It's this. Since the beginning, God's true people faithfully waited on the Messiah and were blessed. Again, I told you that Isaiah wrote this 700 years plus before Christ was born. During Isaiah's day and age, the people were not doing so great. God's people were not doing so great. I often think God's people today aren't doing so great. <laughs> when you look at the decline, not just of numbers in church buildings, but the decline of the faith-filled in our country, I, I wonder about the future of the church in the United States of America because there are less people coming into the ministry than there are people leaving the ministry there are more churches closing on a weekly and monthly basis across the United States than there are opening their doors. 
I mentioned this in my class this morning. Being a missionary today doesn't mean going to foreign lands. It means sometimes just going into your backyard. We are becoming more and more a post-Christian nation to the point to where other places across the seas are sending missionaries to us now. I have, since I've been here as a pastor for 10 years, have known of missionaries coming from South Africa to Butler to minister and to hold revivals and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where are God's people during this day and age? Like Elijah in the Old Testament, oftentimes we may feel alone. After a great triumph, sometimes we are exhausted and worn out. And then that's oftentimes when we're at our weakest because our guard's down. And so Elijah, after conquering the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament, with Jezebel, his adversary, along with her husband Ahab, and no, not the guy with the hook on the sea trying to capture the whale. That's a whole different story, right? We're talking about Ahab and Jezebel in the Old Testament who were kings of the northern kingdom, king and queen of the northern kingdom, but had become so horribly off balance in their offering of their own children to the gods of Baal through the fire. And it started promoting the different pagan rituals in the northern kingdom. Elijah defeats these prophets, and we know that Jezebel finds out that all of her prophets have been executed by Elijah's authority, and she becomes pretty darn angry, so much so that she puts a death warrant out for Elijah, and she says, trust me, I'm going to have your head. And he runs off into the wilderness Afraid for his own life. How could someone be so bold in the heat of the moment, standing before adversaries, so confident that God is going to come through in a miraculous way and show himself to be the one true God, and then in the next moment be so frail and weak? I think we know how. We've probably been there. So he runs into the wilderness. God meets him in the wilderness. It says the angel of the Lord, after he's had a moment of rest, uh, Elijah's had a moment of rest, provides food for him and water for him. And the Lord tells him, I want you to go further. Go to these mountains called Moriah and wait for me there. And he goes and the Lord meets him again, feeds him and gives him energy and rest and at just the right moment as he's on this mountain range in Moriah, which we would know today as the mountain range in Jerusalem, <laughs> there's a mighty earthquake that rattles the mountain and shakes it. Then there's a whirlwind that engulfs the mountain. And then there's fire that engulfs the mountain. We were told that God wasn't in any of those monumental, natural things that happen, even in our day and age. That God comes in almost like this whisper on the wind as he waits on the Lord. And it says, in that whisper 
on the wind. He hears the voice of God that he knew so well down in the valleys. And that voice tells him, buck up, little camper. <laughs> it kind of does. <laughs> Elijah's like, Lord, I'm the only one that's left that serves you. Everybody's out. Nobody is worshiping you anymore. And now I'm having to run for my life. I'm the only one that's faithful. And God says, no, you're not. I have 7,000 that have remained faithful to me and not bowed to any of the gods of these pagan nations. So I want you to get back down there and do the work I've called you to. And so he does. I feel sometimes as a pastor that there are only a handful of faithful left. God, what's going on? Our country's going to waste and our churches are following suit. Until I remember these passages in the Old Testament where God says, do you not think I have a clue what's going on that I am not still on the throne and am still in control? I'm not pleased with what my church is doing, but I still have a remnant of men and women who have not bowed to the gods of your culture and your time period that are still remaining faithful. And there will be a season of persecution and difficulty, and it's not going to be easy, but I will sustain you in the process. Isaiah also writes a passage in the, uh, in later on in his prophecies. It says, those who... Wait upon the Lord will do what? Will renew their strength. This word for wait in that context <clears throat> is actually synonymous with the word for trust. The gift of waiting is the gift of trust. It's, it's actually <clears throat> learning that in the waiting, when we get antsy, we are tested to see whether or not we trust that God's word is true. Waiting on God requires endurance. Waiting on God requires endurance. So what is endurance? Endurance is this, the ability or the strength to continue or last, especially despite fatigue, stress, or other adverse conditions. Endurance means stamina. It can mean it's a lasting quality. It's duration. Biblical scholar and author Bruce Barton describes endurance as faith stretched out. It involves trusting God over a long duration of time. We know that James says in James chapter 1, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for what? For pure joy. Not just joy. He says pure joy. What is pure joy? Joy that is good and holy and righteous. It's not just this mere happiness that is circumstantial. It is joy that goes beyond feelings and emotions, knowing that there is an end in sight and that God is good and trustworthy. He goes on to write, For you know that when your faith is tested, what has a chance to grow? Endurance. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. 
Waiting on God requires not only patience, but endurance. And it means pressing through difficult times, even when you question if God hears the prayers that you pray. God, are you still there? Do you hear my pleas and my cries to you? Because it sounds like the world is louder than my or it sounds like the world is louder than you are right now, and I can't hear your still small voice. Bruce Barton goes on to write, "Diamonds are cold. Did you know that? Of course you did. How would you like to go to? I'm seeing these uh, these commercials now uh, uh, for Jared. You know, not not a guy, but the jewelry store." How many of you would love to walk? How many of you women would love for your guy to get you a beautiful gold ring inset with small little chips of coal? That'd be a wonderful gift, wouldn't it? That'd be amazing. Diamonds are coal subjected to intense pressure over a period of time. Without pressure, coal remains coal. The testing of your faith is the combined pressure that life brings to bear on you. Perseverance is the intended outcome of this testing. In other words, that can be used for this outcome include endurance, steadfastness, fortitude, and staying power. Listen to, the, listen to what he says. The word endurance is a, has a particular connection with this diamond-like quality created by testing since the Latin root of this word actually means to harden. And this is to harden in a good way, not a bad way. We often think in Christianity when someone becomes hardened, they become really crass and, and, and averse to anything that is about God. I'm not talking about that kind of hardness. The endurance hardens us against what is evil and strengthens us for what is good in this context. Perseverance is not a passive submission to circumstances, he says. It is a strong and active response to the difficult events of life. It is not passive endurance, but the quality of standing on your feet as you face the storms. It's not simply the attitude of withstanding trials, but the ability to turn them into glory and overcome them. And anywhere you see the faithful people of God in the Old Testament that have withstood the perseverance and the test of time, they have come through on the other side stronger and more faithful. The second thing is that waiting on God requires believing that he will come through at just the right moment, even if it's not in your lifetime. We live in a generation that expects immediate results. We live in a country that expects immediate results. We have conditioned ourselves today that if we don't know an answer, what do we do? And there are studies that are coming out today that say the human mind is not able to remember as much anymore or to have, have memorization as a part of its you know, learning capacity because we don't need to. I used to remember having to, to um, memorize phone numbers. Do you ever do that? I'm trying to remember, I think I still remember my, when I was in, when I was in like middle school, I think it was uh, 
No, I can't remember. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) We don't have to remember anything anymore, do we? And we think this is a great learning tool, and if used appropriately, it can be, but the reality is all the devices we have at at our disposal have dumbed us down. The fine art of memorization. How many people memorize scripture anymore? I just pull it up on my, on my app and I'm good to go. What happens if we have some big thing that bursts all of that technology and it's gone in, a, in, in the blink of an eye? What, is ha- what, what happens if, like what's happening in China today, the government controls the information you read on your devices? What happens if it's illegal to have a Bible? How much of it do you know that will sustain you through some of the troublesome times you may experience? Do you believe in God that he will come through at just the right moment, even if it's not in your lifetime? Every generation since Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven has awaited his return. And every generation almost written in written human history has thought that he will come back in their lifetime because it's so bad. The world is in such bad shape. He's going to come back in my lifetime. And how many in written human history have sold off everything, have gotten rid of everything, and have gone out on a mountainside saying, it's going to happen on this day at this time, and here he is, and they're still standing there the next day. I'm not mocking them because we just don't know when he's coming back. The New Testament, Jesus even says, nobody knows the day or the hour. Not even me. Only the Father in heaven knows. We love instant gratification. We love the microwave generation. We love the Google generation or the Siri generation because we get what we want when we want it. But God doesn't work that way. And believing in him can be tested because he doesn't work on our timetables. Will you believe in the one who came that child that was born to us to set us free, whose kingdom is a kingdom of peace, even if he doesn't fulfill his purposes in your lifetime. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. Jeremiah, about the same time as Isaiah, around in that same century or so, says, the day is coming says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people, the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. They broke that covenant. What was that covenant? You're at Mount Sinai after the exodus from Egypt. All these millions of people down in the valley awaiting Moses, and God gives Moses ten what? And those commandments are a part of this covenant agreement. If you will truly be my people and follow my commands, I will be your God. And it will go well for you in the land that I'm giving to you. But if you turn your backs on me, it's going to be really ugly. 
And so Jeremiah is referencing that. He said, the covenant that we've worked with all this time, there's coming a day when that covenant will be obsolete, but there will be a new covenant. But listen to what he says about it. This new covenant, verse 33, I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord, I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. He's referencing a time of becoming Messiah, just like Isaiah did. And when Jesus is in the upper room, do you remember this? We do this once a month. I said we serve communion, and we remember that upper room experience at that last Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples when he takes the cup and says, take and drink, for this is the what? The new covenant poured out for who? The sins of many. And it's only the sins of many because not all people will receive that new covenant. Many people will reject it. Because God is not a forceful lover, he is not going to vo- vo- uh, uh, he's not going to force you into a new covenant. He openly welcomes you into it through his blood shed on the cross. That's why he says that's the blood of the new covenant poured out for the sins of many. He also references a time in John chapter 8 verse 56 when, the, when, when he's having this debate with Jewish people and specifically Jewish leaders and, and they're saying that they have a father called Abraham. And Jesus is referencing a father too, but guess what? He's not referencing Abraham. Whenever Jesus talks about having a father, who is his father? In heaven. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But the Jewish people in Jesus' day who had been awaiting a Messiah now have this Messiah standing in front of them and they are referencing Abraham as their father because they're challenging him. This can't really be. We know we're waiting on a Messiah, but you're not it. And then he he quotes, or he, he, he says in John chapter eight, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it, and was glad. And that really ticks them off. (laughs) Because he's claiming that he is the Messiah in those few words. But if that wasn't enough, what really incensed them, if you continue to read, they say right after that, how could you even know Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. Well, actually, Abraham would come over a millennia before Jesus. How can you know this Abraham? And how could he know you? And he says these words, before Abraham was, I am. He used in the words of Aramaic, which are translated into Greek in our New Testaments, the words that God used for himself in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush when Moses says, who shall I say is sending me to set the captives free And the voice from the bush said, I am that I am. And Jesus on that day says, before Abraham was, I am. And they looked to kill him after that because that was considered blasphemy. But it's not blasphemy if it's true. Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews 
actually commends all of those throughout the course of human history for having faith in God and his promises, even though it didn't happen in their lifetime. Right in the middle of what we call the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer adds these words, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and they welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on the earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for their country, the country they had come from, they would have just gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Go to John chapter 14. You don't have to do well, I, Yeah, go to John 14. What does Jesus say in that upper room at that last supper as he's preparing his disciples for what is about to come through his, uh, through his uh, arrest and crucifixion? He says, I'm going to go from here. But I'm going to leave from here. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Do you remember those words? And he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. Do you see what's happening? How all of this Old and New Testament comes together in the center point is Jesus. Last point I want to make this morning is this. Waiting on God requires faith that his promises are true. Not only belief, but faith. And they are very close to the same, but there's distinctive differences between the two. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors, distinguishes the difference between faith and hope by explaining that faith is looking at God and trusting him for everything, while hope is looking at the future and trusting God for it. Now let me say that again. Faith and hope are two different things. Faith is looking at God and trusting him for everything, while hope is looking at the future and trusting God for it. Hebrews 11:6, same chapter that I just quoted from, the writer says, and it is impossible to please God without what? Faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him, who are not going through a ritual, who are not just checking a religious box, who are actually saying, I'm all in. And I'm all in in every area of my life, not just a couple hours on Sunday morning. N.T. Wright goes further to insist, unless you have faith, unless you really believe that God exists and that he does indeed want people to seek him and will reward them lavishly when they do, you cannot actually worship him. You cannot worship God without faith. He goes on to write, and it's in worship of him that we truly find out what it means to be his children. It's in true worship where believers in Christ come to understand what an intimate relationship with God through his son is really about. And like any relationship, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes discipline, endurance. And our faith in God, when tested, has the ability to endure some of the most difficult of circumstances as we wait for the fulfillment of God's promises. 
If you come to the end of your life and you breathe your last and you've not seen the fulfillment of every one of God's promises, it doesn't mean that he's failed. It just means it's not in your lifetime. And if you look at the end of your life on this earth as truly the end, then you are sorely mistaken because there is an eternity beyond your last breath. And we today, just like the Israelites of old through the prophets Isaiah, are awaiting one who is coming, who came one time before, but will come again, as I mentioned last week. We are awaiting an advent just as we are celebrating the first advent. We are awaiting the second advent, his return, where he will set the record straight, set the captives free once and for all, and do away with sin and death forever. And he's wanting and desiring and expecting and hoping for a people who are remaining faithful to their last breath. Because he sees and knows exactly the right moment in history when his good and perfect will will be fulfilled for all people. Let me close with this as our worship team comes forward this morning. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, Waiting for God is not laziness. I hear people say, and you can use it as laziness, I'm just waiting on God. I'm just waiting on God to come through. It's not laziness. I want you to hear what he says. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of effort. Waiting for God means first, activity under command. Waiting is not sitting. Waiting is not not doing. Waiting is actively doing what God has commanded us to do all along until he gives us different directives. Waiting on God requires patience. Secondly, readiness for any new command that may come. And third, waiting on God is the ability to do nothing until the other command is given. So we are working at the commands God has given us until we hear a different directive. We don't just stop and do nothing. This waiting on the Lord to have our strength renewed is not a passively sitting by and watching the world pass us. It is actively continuing in the last commands God has given. And the one command I know he has given us that we function at as a church that is our main vision and, and, and mission is to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that God has commanded us, and to remember that he's with us to the end of the age. And that end of the age may not come in our lifetime, but it will come at the right time. Do you have faith? Do you have patience? Are you willing to wait even if it doesn't happen in your lifetime? And the it that I'm talking about is what you think you're supposed to be doing. What you're supposed to be doing is being obedient to the commands that God has given and leaning into the power of the Holy Spirit and listening for that still small voice that may tell you to get back where you were and get back to work. Or it may tell you, your season is done there. I want you to move to this place and to do this next thing. Our altars are open, and yes, they are in a different position, and no, they are not 
just one step closer to out the doors. I promise you, and will always promise you, there will be altars in this arena as long as I'm your pastor because I believe in the power of prayer and the power of people praying together. If you want to pray this morning and have someone pray with you, you come to my right, your left, someone will meet you there to pray with you. If you want to pray alone because this message has somehow struck a chord with you and you know you need to move from where you are to here, you come to my left, your right. Nobody's going to bother you there. You can pray and spend time alone with God. Again, I ask as I ask every week and I pray every week that you would allow God's word to transform you in some way that as you continue in your walk of faith with Christ that you would grow more deeply in an intimate relationship with him as each and every day passes will you pray with me father it's hard to be patient uh, especially when we've conditioned we've been conditioned to not be patient it's hard to wait on you and to not step ahead of you and to do our own thing. It's hard not to fill what seems like a void with noise and activity when you've called us to just be steady with what you've already told us. Forgive us where we failed you, where we've not waited, where we've not trusted, where we've not been patient, and give us the stick to the endurance and the perseverance to wait upon you and to know what it truly means to have our strength renewed. Just as the prophets of old foreshadowed a time that would come, maybe centuries even after they had died, help us to be faithful to your calling and to press forward for generations that will come after us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.